Hello everyone and welcome to episode 53 of the Talking Fitball podcast with me, Derek Clark. Every week we try and bring you a top class interview with some of the biggest characters in the game. This week I had the pleasure of chatting to a broadcasting legend, a man ingrained in the history of Scottish football. It is of course the one and only Archie McPherson. I was keen to get Archie on the show to talk about his new book, More Than A Game, which looks at the unsavoury scenes at the end of the 1980s Scottish Cup final when a riot broke out between Rangers and Celtic supporters in the aftermath of that event, which has still been felt to to this day. He gives us an insight into the book, which I heartily recommend. I've posted a link on where you can get a copy in the bio. He also looks back on an amazing career that's seen him cover World Cups when Scotland used to qualify once upon a time. Notable interviews, memorable players, and what he makes of Scottish football in the present day. It was an absolute honour to spend time in Archie's company, so sit back and enjoy the latest episodes of the Talking Football podcast. Welcome everyone to another edition of the, the Talking Football Podcast. I'm delighted to say we're joined this week by broadcasting royalty, Archie McPherson. Archie, thank you very much for, for joining us. Not at all. Delighted. <clears throat> Before we look back on a, a great career, Archie, of course you've got a new book out, More Than a Game. Um, it's a fantastic read. I've just read it myself. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and what gave you this sort of inspiration, if you liked, to, to write it? Well, it, it's an event that happened 40 years ago, and I did the commentary, the infamous riot that took place in the Scottish Cup final, uh, the old firm Scottish Cup final. And uh, on the 10th, 20th, and 30th anniversary of that event, the press would, uh, metaphorically speaking, turn up at my doorstep asking for information about what it was like that day. And I would give them it, and so 10th, 20th and 30th, some of my comments I made in the commentary at that time would appear in the press. So after it passed the 30th anniversary, I started to think, well, if it reaches 40, it's a kind of significant date. Yeah. Lots of books are written about anniversary uh, occasions. And I thought since I was involved in that as a broadcaster, I would um, uh, write a book about it. Now, I was writing other books at the time, but it was always in the back of my mind to sit down and do this. On the other hand, I felt that uh, being the old firm, I couldn't locate it just to one day. It had to be a kind of personal history of my involvement in it. Not another history of the old firm. Not another history of Rangers or Celtic, but my personal involvement. What I saw and what I heard um, or spoke to people indirectly about things. It was a purely personal thing because there have been many books written about the old firm. Sociologists have done it. Historians have done it, etc. cetera. Uh, I wanted to make it personal, which means it would be rather different from uh, others since nobody had done the commentary that day uh, uh, to, to as big a number of viewers as myself. Uh, I felt that in itself was leverage enough for me to write a book about it. And consequently, if I did that, it would have to spill over into other events, which I do in the book. And one of the difficulties of writing a book like that, where you base it on one day, but that one day continually appears right through the book uh, until we get to the aftermath, and I look at some of the consequences. Yeah. And I had to slip into other events, like 
Barcelona, like Lisbon, like uh, other events, like the trial that took place where old firm players were in the dock and under serious political pressure. So the the trick was trying to make sure you you could switch smoothly between that day, the 10th of May 1980, into other events and other issues. Uh, and that was the biggest task of all to try to do that. Yeah. You describe it really, really well, commentating on that day. I mean, it must be watching that unfold before your eyes, Archie. I mean, what, what was going through your mind, knowing that you're, you're on air as well, must have been extremely difficult. Well, I say in the book that I, I had come prepared with all the usual cliches, you know, <laughs> as a football commentator. And suddenly here I was presented with a, an, another challenge. It was a bit like, as I said in the book, it was a bit like the bassoonist in a, a symphony orchestra turning up to play the bassoon. And the conductor says, no, you're playing first violin today. <laughs> um, but, so, I mean, it was a, 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 a change of tack. I have to say, uh, I, I use this word advisedly, but I have to admit it. I began to enjoy it. Mm. I, be- I began to enjoy the challenge. And what went through my mind was sometimes commentators thrust into that situation will get carried away too much and talk too much where the viewer at home, the television viewer at home, can see what is happening mm. over a long spell. So I had to ration what I was saying and try and come up with appropriate words from time to time and not just overspeak. Uh, whether that succeeded or not, of course, I'm, I'm not sure. But that, that, that was the policy of doing it. And secondly, in a way, I, again in admission, I wasn't all that surprised about what happened. Yeah. I had been brought up in an area of Glasgow um, where... I learned very quickly about the divisions that exist in society and uh, exemplified by the, the supporters of the old firm. So it seemed to me something like this was going to happen. Mm. Uh, eventually, it was almost in a, a shape of destiny about it. So I wasn't all that surprised. Or, or, or Well, it was an initial shock. I mean, what the hell's happening here kind of thing. And then you just got into it and uh, tried to respond to it, to, to it naturally. Yeah, and of course we're now uh, 40 years on, like you say. How do you think that the situation has sort of evolved now to the, to the state of play we're at, we're at now between both clubs? Well, it's a tough question. Well, <laughs> it, it is, it is a, a, there's a yes and no to that. I think, um, first of all, we have modern stadia. And there is uh, a clear logistical advantage in that. We can identify the misdemeanors much more easily. Yeah. I'll give you an example. Um, when Ibrooks was modernized uh, right about the, the, the early 80s and so on, developed into, at that stage, the most modern stadium in Britain, mm-hmm. um, Joe Beatty, who was the inspector in charge of the Govan police office said that old firm games in the past, his area, his police office was an area of mass subnormality where they would have 400 arrests. Now he said it's maybe about half a dozen yeah. and that's got peeing in the streets or something like that. Yeah. 
So the physical structure of stadia has intervened, if you like, to uh, modify mm. the hatreds, which, which, by the way, still exist. No question at all about that. And that's the second answer. So yes, up to a point, but no, nothing has changed in terms of the animosity that's been expressed, particularly exacerbated by social media. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, no question about it. You mentioned that you, you, nothing surprised you really with regards to that 1980 Cup final in terms of the, the rise and what have you. We've grown up back in, you grew up in Shettleston, is, is that right, as a, as a young lad? Actually. That's right. What was it? What was, life, right. what was life like growing up back then? Well, Shettleson, uh, even to this day, uh, or even until maybe two or three years ago, was always judged uh, by those people who know these things in the economy as one of the most underprivileged areas in the whole of the UK. So it must have been pretty underprivileged when I was a boy. Yeah. But I was never aware of any tremendous hardship. Because in those days, there was such a thing as the extended family. I'm sure that still exists. But particularly in a, in a, in a dense working class area, the extended family gave you kind of support. If you ran out of a jacket, a cousin had a jacket for you. Yeah. Uh, if you ran out of a basic grocery, then your granny would come in. And so, so I was never aware of any particular hardship, although <clears throat> poverty was certainly, certainly there. And in terms, I lived in a house, uh, a, 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 a flat, my granny's flat, mm. which looked out on Shettleson Road. And on old firm day, you could see the crowds <clears throat> pouring towards Park Head. Yeah. Different sides of the street normally, you know, Rangers on one side, Celtic on the other, kind of. And after the game, it was normally benign. It, 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 there were people who probably hated each other for those 90 minutes and then came back and walked with each other on a Monday morning. Yeah. Um, and I was never conscious of, of deep, really deep, close bitterness uh, as such. But it was there. And as I put out my book, I saw a fight one day which drove it home to me that underneath this apparent civility that was going on, there were deep hatreds against one another. <clears throat> And uh, they would use any excuse to bring it out. And in this particular occasion, uh, an incident that happened in 1949, um, a, uh, a, I beg your pardon, a, I just forget the, the date at the moment, but it, it was in the 40s, yeah. when a riot had taken place at Ibrooks after an incident between two players, Sammy Cox and Charlie Tully, the Rangers and Celtic player which lasted for a long time, and a lot of controversy about the incident of the park itself. And the fight was based on that. <clears throat> yeah. Four men were taking sides. <clears throat> I beg your pardon. <clears throat> Four men were taking sides. And uh, I suddenly realised, well, this is, if this could be deadly serious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And growing up back then as well, um, Archie, when you always playing football with... With, with kids, and did you have aspirations to be a, a footballer yourself? Well, like everybody else, yes, of course. But um, maybe I thought from early on I wasn't good enough. <laughs> um, I, we used to play 20 aside around the yeah. backs, using the dustbins as goalposts, uh, 
were experts in Yehidis up the tournament close. <laughs> Tanner Bortrix, you know, full of that. I saw brilliant players. Yeah. A really, really brilliant players in the east end of Glasgow who would come to nothing because they wouldn't have the opportunity. Yeah. Their background wouldn't be strong enough to help them get into an environment where they could be encouraged to become a professional player. They had no chance, yeah. no chance of progressing. So there must have been an enormous wastage of talent in Scotland emerging from the 40s, 50s and 60s. Talent did emerge. I mean, these were the great days of Scottish football because we had plenty of boys playing football and they did come through the ranks. Yeah. But there were hosts of others. I remember playing in a school game, semi-final of the Scottish Cup, as it were, yeah. at Lesser Hamden, against a boy called Johnny Woods. He was about the most, he was like a, um, a Messi. I mean, he was that good at schoolboy level. I mean, you couldn't get a ball off him. He was just a <clears throat> He went to Rangers and was never heard of again. You know, it, I, I played in a trial game for Hamilton Ackes, would you believe? Wow. Way back. Way back. Uh, and he was playing in it. Uh, and he was no longer the boy wonder. Yeah. He was just an ordinary player. And you had to say to yourself, what happened to that? Yeah. That, that marvellous talent that never came to anything. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, I, I, I simply could have sensed I was an honest endeavour player. Yeah. If we could put it out, I was fast. Uh, I was an athlete and won races and so on. So I usually played in the wing. Um, but uh, I, I was never really going to make it to the top grade. Yeah, and your father played juniors, is that is that right? Was he Did he play in the, the juniors? He did, yes. Yes, he played for uh, lots of airship teams. Yeah. His main team was Large Thistle. They remember when they beat the famous Urban Meadow, the newspapers had a title, uh, the team that mowed the meadow. Um, <laughs> and he played for Darvel. Yeah. Uh, and he, of course, he played for Shettles uh, and Juniors, such as his own club. And then he was about to, and remember, we're talking about a man who was a baker who, who did night shift. Wow. And his night shift would end at 7 o'clock in the morning. And he would run from the bakery to catch a train, which would take him through to Stirling, where he played for for Kings Park. Now Kings Park were Stirling Albion. Yeah. They were renamed after the war, and, and so he played professional and senior football for for Kings Park under terrible conditions. I mean, he couldn't give up his best. He was fast as well, yeah. and he ran professionally too, and. Um, when you're coming off the night shift in a bakery and stepping onto a football pitch a few hours later, you know, you're not you're not exactly at your best. And then curiously enough, Stirling Albion uh, emerged from King's Park because on the night of the Clydebank Blitz, German planes making sure that they could get back to Germany and still with bombs uh, in their load had to unload some of the bombs to make sure they got back over the North Sea. And one of these bombs, they unloaded over Stirling, and it fell on King's Park and devastated the, the, the club and the, and the pitch and everything else. Um, so when they came back, they had to remould themselves, and they remoulded themselves, remoulded themselves in the shape of a, a new name, Stirling Albion. Yeah, yeah, fascinating stuff. It is, it's, um, 
remarkable. Of course, you would then become a teacher, um, become a headmaster, of course. What made you go into the, that side of work? Uh, I, I don't know. I can't <laughs> answer that question. I think uh, I was interested in writing and uh, I wanted to, to teach uh, kids how to write and read and read good stuff and so on. I, I suppose it was it was something like that. Yeah. I like the holidays. Well, <laughs> Uh, the long summer holidays. So <laughs> that, but but basically, even though I was teaching, I was still writing. Yeah. Um, I still wanted to be a writer. I still wanted to be a journalist above yeah. all else. But teaching was a convenient um, uh, area to go into, which meant I could teach and also write at the same time. Yeah. So I'd go home after teaching. I would stay up late to write stories and send them away to different outlets. And they came back, as James Thurber once famously said, like rejection slips, mm. like ping pong balls from the other side of the net. But I kept at it until eventually somebody bought the story of mine. Yeah, you mentioned right stories. Was it was it football related stuff you you were writing? No, writing? no, nothing at all to do with football or sport. It was just short stories yeah. about life. <clears throat> wow, and. Uh, the, the turn of my career was one day I was teaching in Glenboy Village and I saw an Indian brush salesman out of the window. It was a very hot day. He was carrying this, uh, lifting this big suitcase, obviously full of brushes or something yeah. like that. And I wrote a story about a wee boy helped him sell his first brush of the day. Um, and the BBC accepted that story. So that was my foot under the table. Yeah. Wow, incredible. And uh, can you remember... Uh, Moving into the football reporting, is that something you fancied doing back then, moving into that side of what, commentating? Well, well, I was playing, first of all, I played a couple of seasons with Queen's Park Scrollers, which is the kind of club delivering at Queen's Park. Yeah. And then I started to play for Jordan Hill College, with very some very good players playing for us, an amateur, top-class amateur football. Yeah. So I played for about... Uh, I would say uh, a good six seasons playing at a good level. Played for Lachlan Amateurs for a a little stretch as well. And um, uh, I I simply went in one day to put my short story in, which had nothing to do with football or sport. And the guy said, what I did, I said I played football. He said, well, maybe you should... uh, um, pursue that and ask if you could uh, try it out. So I sent a letter to <clears throat> telling him I'd written this. <clears throat> I went to a game, came back and reported it. And uh, he said he liked it. Uh, and that was me started. Wow. As basic as that. I mean, I was still teaching. I, wasn't, I didn't leave teaching. Yeah. I worked for the BBC for, I would say, about seven years part-time before eventually... Uh, I became full-time at the BBC. Yeah. Wow, incredible. You mentioned there that the Queen's Park Strollers, you, you, you wouldn't have played at the same time as um, Eddie Hunter, would you? I'm not sure what age is Eddie. I can't, I can't remember. <laughs> I think he's in like the 70s or, or what have you. But, but I, I interviewed him a few weeks ago and um, he's obviously Mr. Queen's Park. So just when you mentioned that there, I was thinking sure. maybe you might have crossed paths. Perhaps. Possibly. Possibly. I mean, Davey Latham are very famous. Queen's Park player played at the time. I, I, I knew him in later life because he was a teacher. He was a yeah. gym teacher. 
in Bridgeton, <clears throat> and um, uh, Junior Omond was there at the yeah. time, another famous Queen's character. Neil Hopper was there. You know, there were some very good Queen's players. I remember Queen's were Queen's uh, had been in the, the first division in Scottish football. Yeah, but they were beginning to decline at that stage. Yeah. <clears throat> So can, can can you remember the first game that you actually reported on, commentated on for the, for the BBC? Well, I can remember the, the, the first game I reported on yeah. was, uh, would you believe, Douglas Park, Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, the Aggies. Um, it was on the day, uh, a very, an infamous day, as a matter of fact, a Saturday. And as I travelled on the red bus, towards Douglas Park from the first duty for the BBC, I was wondering if I would ever see my wife again. <laughs> because it, it, it was the day of the Cuban crisis. It was the very day when the merchant ships carrying the nuclear missiles towards Cuba yeah. were going to be stopped and intercepted by the American Navy, which might have meant a nuclear war. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, years later, when I was in the States, I met people who worked in the Pentagon for the military. And they had bade their wives farewell that morning, just in case they never saw them again. <clears throat> so it was that serious. It was that serious. However, um, obviously, the Kremlin realized that Hamilton Aki's needed points, so they decided <laughs> to turn their, their ships back, uh, and there was no conflagration, as it were. Yeah. So there was no war. And that, that was the first. And then they provided a, it was all very squish. I mean, it was unbelievable. You're a Lanarkshire school teacher. And then all of a sudden, this famous corporation are providing a taxi for you to whip you back to the studio to make your report. Yeah. It, it, it was almost overwhelming. Yeah. I did the report and then that was me started on a regular basis. Yeah. The first commentary game was at uh, the old Kafkin. Oh, Kafkin yes. Park. Yeah. Atlantic against Hibs. That was the first actual commentary game uh, I did yeah. for uh, television, it was. I didn't do a radio commentary until much later, curiously enough, because there were very good yeah. radio commentators about at that time. What did you make of Catherine Park? We had um, I had Bert Payton on last week, and he said when the players were in the, 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 the games room playing pool that the the clubhouse and that used to shake because it was a bit of a ramshackle of a ground. How, how did you find it? Well, not then. No, when I started. When I started, it was holding crowds of 35,000, 40,000. Yeah. It was very convenient for both Celtic and Rangers supporters, of course, Yeah. Uh, on the south side of the city. So it could be crammed. And I had gone with my grandfather very often in the 22 bus from Cantown all the way around to Kafkin to watch one player in particular, Jimmy Mason, yeah. the famous inside forward who scored the opening goal for Scotland in their famous victory in the 1940s over England, 3-1. Um, and uh, so I knew Caskin quite well. And I love Mason, which is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Inch perfect, of a ball. So, I, I, and it was a fine ground at, at that stage. It was a fine ground. We're not talking <clears throat> about that deterioration until maybe about 10 years hence. Remember, you had the Hillary, Harley, 
combination up front for thirds when they were going strong. They had great crowds and good yeah. finances. And then some dubious characters came into the, the reckoning and uh, that was the end of the lava. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, it's a shame. Um, in terms of the, the commentating, Archie, um, was that daunting for you? Was that something you thrived on? Was there anyone that you that, that helped mentor you or what have you when, when you first started out? Not really. Um, I think it was you're, you're just in at the detail. Yeah. There's no real instruction uh, whatsoever. Um, you just went at it and you kept in the back of your mind other people you had obviously heard through the years. Uh, and that acted as a kind of guide for you. But it wasn't as if you went through a tutorial for what <laughs> yeah, to say, yeah, what, yeah. what to say. So that simply didn't exist. It just you were thrown in at the deep end. And uh, television uh, uh, commentary at, at that stage was obviously not live. Yeah, It was on film. And consequently, because of the the difficulties of working with 16 millimeter cameras and film, you were never quite sure what would come out at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So nothing was live, and you, you you worked under these constraints. You never were quite sure what would be shown at night, <clears throat> whether it would get into the edit or not, or whether there was a, a camera jam that you didn't know about, yeah. or whether there were sound problems you didn't know about. So um, you couldn't let rip, as it were. <laughs> you could do it on radio. As soon as I started radio commentary, the game is yourself. Yeah. You are the game. Nothing comes between you and the game. You can make it like a World Cup final, um, even though it's like a, a, um, watching a hearse <laughs> crawl up the road uh, at a funeral. You could make it if you wanted. Yeah. It sounds like a European final. That was different. Totally different from television commentary. Yeah. And, I mean, in terms now, commentators and what have you, they have so much information at their disposal in terms of researching before games, the likes of players and what have you. But with yourself back then, how difficult was it doing that, especially for, for like, European games and what have you, doing, your, doing a bit of research before the, before the game itself? Well, in the early days, of course, you had to forage around for it yourself. Yeah. You had to phone people, you had to phone foreign commentators, get uh, some background. It's a kind of background information, whether somebody has problems with dandruff <laughs> or whether his, his granny brought him up as a kid, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but nowadays, of course, or, or from 20, 30 years ago, your, your supply, you can be supplied with notebooks. It's too much. In fact. Yeah. You, can, you can become obsessed with statistics. Yeah. And statistics are the last refuge of a commentating scoundrel, if you put it that way. Quite. All, they, all they think about is statistics. The one famous commentator, I won't name, and that's really uh, obsessed uh, statistics. Yeah. Uh, anybody can read up statistics and just turn them out. The thing about commentary is spontaneity. What, what occurs to you at the time, even on television, with all the constraints that the viewers can see what's happening in any case. Spontaneity is, is the the main spring, if you like, yeah. for a commentator. Yeah. In terms of matches, of course, we, we touched on the the nineteen eighty Cup final. You've covered a, a whole host of uh, 
massive, massive games in, involving different clubs. The Scotland national team, of course, as well. Archie, is there anyone that, that I imagine there's a host that, that, that spring out to you as, as, as being great to commentate on? Well, the famous one for me was um, 1978 in um, Mendoza. Yeah, Arjun. when Archie Gamble scored his, his great goal. Yeah. To set the scene for that, and this is why, I mean, um, uh, I'm just getting messages until I stop the screen here, by the way. Don't worry, don't worry about it. Nothing important. Nothing important. <laughs> the world is not coming to an end. Um, although we might think of it at the moment. Yeah. Um, where, where, oh, yes, Mendoza. Yeah. Well, first of all, Argentina had been terrible for all of us. It had been a major disappointment. The first game we should have won and didn't. Missed a penalty and... Uh, then came the game against Iran, which was perhaps the worst game I've ever, at any stage, had to commentate on. It was just absolutely dreadful. So we went to Mendoza, down in the dumps, miserable. D-mob happy. We just wanted back home after all the crashing anti-climaxes. And then came that performance. And I remember sitting with Alan Heron of the Sunday Mail, who was my co-commentator because none of the Scottish players were allowed the reserves to come and commentate because a gulf had developed between the media and the SFA. Uh, they were in the huff, in fact. So he was there with me. And uh, I always remember when Archie Gemmell got this ball and he started to weave his way into the penalty area. I could sense about 30 commentators in a, a roll right along starting to rise to their feet. In, in a, honestly, in a sense of anticipation, including Alan and I, until he beat one, beat the other, beat the other, yeah. and the ball in the back of the net. And that was utterly memorable, of course. Yeah. And um, it pursued me through the years because I did the commentary again for Danny Boyle in his film, Trainspotting. Because <laughs> yeah. he needed... He, the sound commentary had faded a bit, so he, he brought me across from Paris where I was working at the time to London, Soho, to record. I did it 14 times for him. No wonder the bugger won the Academy Award. <laughs> 14 times until he got it right. Yeah. And um, uh, so that, that that obviously is the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Archie Gamble's goal. Was a, although, again, the crashing disappointment that we didn't make it. It was... Uh, we needed to win handsomely in that game yeah. to go through. Uh, and we didn't but at least uh, it was a victory yeah, of course you can read about that and you've got another book that I've read the generation, A Golden Age that when Scotland were at World Cups when you yeah. were covering them um, do you feel that Argentina was a right missed opportunity Archie? I know there was a, a big song and dance when we, when we went over there and it just sort of, like you say, the likes of the Iran game was massively disappointing. Do you feel that was a missed opportunity um, going over that we should have done a, a bit better? Well, um, yeah, well, yeah, the obvious answer is yes, we were all disappointed in that. We had gone in the year before to Argentina on the pre-World Cup tour, and we drew with Argentina, the host nation, in the Boca Juniors Stadium. Yeah. Uh, one each. And the Argentinians were given a penalty in that game. Really, it was a dreadful decision when Scotland were winning 1-0. Yeah. 
and that gave Ali the incentive to come out with is we could we could win the World Cup. You know, we all went along. A lot of people went along with that. But on the other hand, I think many of his players had peaked the season before. Yeah. And they weren't at their best at the time they got to Argentina. Yeah. And there were one or two individuals who let us down. And uh, I think the hype was too much. Yeah. Couldn't be carried by the players. Um, so maybe when you look back on it, it was understandable why we failed. Yeah. Of course, you covered a number of World Cups and you had great co-commentators alongside you. Jock Steen, of course, was one of those. What was that like to, um, to, to commentate on with, to, to sort of share your time with? Well, he came to Germany in 74. Yeah. That was our first World Cup. And uh, he was beside me on the platform in Dortmund for the first game against Zaire. Yeah. And uh, I think he worried uh, about the heat. That I mean, anybody who wasn't there and just simply watched the television would wonder why eventually the, the game looked lethargic, stodgy in the second half. The heat and humidity was just unbelievable that day. Yeah. A lot of people said, well, why didn't Scotland go on and try and score uh, a battlefield of goals? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, that would have mattered and, and did and did matter. Uh, but it was our first World Cup game. Nobody knew what Zaire were going to be like, um, whether they're going to be awful or, or whatever. And in any case, these nations, if you look back through history, these nations in their first game, uh, coming from from obscurity, if you like, their first game is always the best game. So putting these factors together, two nothing, I think was was all right. They were blamed for not making it ten nothing or something. They never have done that because of these huge demands. Billy Bremner told me he could hardly breathe in the second half. It was so hard. So, uh, and Steen, Steen had warned about that. And he was also particularly concerned about team selection. He felt that uh, Dennis Law, who was obviously the idol of the Scottish support, shouldn't have been played in the first game. It was a sentimental yeah. decision on Willie Ormond's part. He wasn't up to it. That was his last game for Scotland. And sadly, for such a great player, it was... Um, a nothing performance by his standard. And uh, the other problem was Scotland couldn't get the, the best out of Jimmy Johnson because of some of the shenanigans that had gone on. Yeah. He and Brenda had been in trouble with the SFA and, and so on. And he, he told us, he said, uh, Jimmy Johnson shouldn't be played. He's not the right kind of mentality now to go out and do something. And Willie Allman never played him. I think he warmed up on one occasion near the end of the game with Yugoslavia. Uh, and the disappointment, and anybody who looks back on the games, I know some people, they, they, their eyes become glazed over when you mention some names like Kenny Dalglish. Kenny Dalglish had a very poor World Cup in yeah. Germany in 74. 
He was nowhere near the player he eventually became. Why? I'm not sure. But he had a poor World Cup in Germany. And that was another uh, significant factor, although he was he was he played in the, the three games. So um yes, uh, and Steen had Steen had summed up that uh, first game perfectly. Yeah. The heat, the exhaustion, and two nothing was a, an adequate result. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, like you say, it was a golden time looking back now for the, the Scotland team and making these uh, World Cup finals. 98, of course, was the last one we made, but we've not made one since. What do you make of the, the state of Scot- uh, the Scotland national team at the moment? And do you think we're maybe coming over that, that hill and we're, we're improving? Or where are we at the moment? Well, uh, we've got now players playing at the top level in England. Yeah. <clears throat> Two or three players. <clears throat> and that makes a difference. Um, because if they're playing not only in England, but European games, like Andy Robertson at, uh, with Liverpool, yeah. McTominay and you know players like that, um, there is a pol- uh, possibility of building around young players. But we have a long way to go. Yeah. We have a long, long way to go uh, to get back into a World Cup, for example. Yeah. It's possible that we have to lower our expectations for a few years until we encourage younger players to come through, give them a, a good number of games um, before we can think of progressing to another level. It's very difficult. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In terms of back to the commentary, Archie, of course, you were commentating for, for Scotland in the main back then. Did you ever have any run-ins with uh, the teams down south at all? Oh, yes. Uh, there was one occasion, the Scotland-Brazil game, which, by the way, was shown on BBC Scotland recently. And it was a David Coleman commentary that was actually shown in it. The reason for that is, initially, I wasn't supposed to do that game at all. Yeah. Um, we were told there were no commentary positions other than for BBC London or BBC Network, as we call it, and that that would suffice. Well, I had been sent by BBC Scotland to do the commentaries. So... BBC Scotland lodged a, 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 a complaint with BBC London. They got nowhere. Yeah. So I decided to take it on my own initiative. And I contacted a, a Labour MP um, who, with whom I uh, had a very close association and told him about this. And uh, he got on the ball, as it were, and started political manoeuvres. So they got me a position for that game, that Scotland-Brazil game, but I don't think my commentary was ever recorded uh, as such. I think it was Coleman's commentary that was. Yeah. So there was some politicking that went on in those days, yes. They, they, they sometimes could be bully boys. Yeah. And in terms of maybe difficult characters that you've dealt with in terms of interviewing and what have you, is there anyone that sticks out in the mind at all? Um, well, the... Uh, I remember Eddie Turnbull, for example, after Hibbs had oh, beaten yeah. Celtic in the Driver Cup final. Um, I got him out, got him wild up with the the, the mics, yeah. cameras on him, and he suddenly said to me, how much am I getting for this? And I said, I don't know. And he just whipped everything off and walked away. <laughs> um, it was difficult to work with Brian Robson. Well wonderful, wonderful captain of England and Manchester United. 
but he was monosyllabic. Yeah. He hardly spoke, he hardly got a sentence out of him. And he was my co-commentator in the Scotland-Norway game. <laughs> and it was like drawing teeth. It was really awful. Interviewing Pele because he couldn't understand a word that came out of his mouth. His, his pidgin English was just <laughs> almost laughable. It was like something concocted by, by Walt Disney. Um, <laughs> you know, these people, uh, and uh, by and large, though, I, I, was, I was fortunate. Um, I got some great interviews, and th- these are the ones, obviously, that I remember rather than uh, the harder ones. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was fortunate that way. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of, uh, of course, you, you mentioned Pele and the likes there. In terms of watching players and commentating it in certain players, is there anyone that, that stands out that for you that you, you're watching, you're, you're reporting on, you're thinking, wow, this is a, a right good player here? Well, we know the obvious Scottish one. Yeah. But I would pick out certain foreign players that impress me. And I go way back to the famous occasion when Dennis Law scored a marvellous goal against Czechoslovakia at Hamburg in the 60s. A superb, he's probably the best goal he ever scored for Scotland. Yeah. And playing for the Czechs was a man called Mazepust, midfield player. Wonderful manipulator of the ball. Powerful, fast. He had everything as a, a midfield player. And he became one, became one of the, the European giants. Daniel Passarella. Yeah, Argentinian. Of Argentina. Yeah. He wasn't a tall man, but oh, he was a rock. Mm. Um, intelligent, fast. Um, Luque, with the flowing hair that played up front for, for Argentina. Uh, players like that, and of course, in, in, in the present year, I mean, I go back to Maradona. I was, I was in the stadium when Maradona did the Hand of God role, wow. <clears throat> I had been left behind um, to do some work for BBC Network. Yeah. So um, I watched that goal that day, although I, I have to be honest, I didn't say anything wrong with the goal at the time, although he clearly punched the ball. Um, and he was just magnificent, utterly magnificent. Yeah. Um, I think he's often compared to Pele. Pele was... was Superb, obviously, but Maradona I would have preferred in a choice. As I would choose Messi against Ronaldo. Yeah. Messi, a team player who gets battered to bits, just yeah. stands up and carries on being brilliant again. And uh, so these are the players that come to mind outside of our own country. Yeah. Absolutely. And I wanted to touch on as well, Archie, of course, Scottish football is um, at the fore at the moment, even though we don't have any football to, to, to report on. Um, off-field issues are, are, are being scrutinised. The SPFL, of course, deciding to call the season. But what, what, what's your views on, on the state of play at the moment and, and where we're headed? Well, it's, it's really awful. And somebody has to clear up the mess that was yeah. the vote that was taken where somebody voted and then didn't vote. Uh, that seems incomprehensible to me. Uh, I think there should have been an inquiry into what went on. What's wrong with an inquiry, yeah. for heaven's sake? I mean, what, what's wrong? Let's look at itself. Now, in my book, More Than a Game, um, I, I touch on the issues arising from sectarianism and so on. 
and uh, we look we look at the, the the situation that Rangers got into, for example, when they went into liquidation and so on, and all the, the ramifications that came from that. But the big motivation then, as it is now, and hasn't changed, and probably never will change, is self interest. Yeah. You know the. We have an epidemic just now where they say we're all in it together. Scottish League has never worked in that basis we're all in it together. <laughs> they've, looked after, they've looked after themselves. Each club has their own perspective, their own tunnel vision, simply looking after themselves. There's, there's no sense of corporate balance. Um, and that's why it, it, it's difficult to get votes off. For example, reconstruction. Uh, I've always been a believer in a 16-club league. I, I don't mean now. I mean 30 years ago. Yeah. I was a believer in a 16-club league. To give opportunities to bring on younger players. People say, oh, too many easy games. Play your younger players. Yeah. Develop players. There's, in a tight league, when they started off with the League of Ten, for example, the Super League, it was an elitist league yeah. because it wasn't a 10, it was eight because two teams would never be relegated, Rangers and Celtic. It was only the other eight who would say, my God, we've got to stay in this league. Hence, Scottish football becoming, at that stage, very defensive. Yeah. Jim McLean, the great exponent of attacking football, yeah. said, I'll cut out midfield players. I'll, 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 I'll start group one. He never did, in fact, but he was so frustrated because he said uh, one of his midfield players, whose name just escapes me at the moment, we play almost like Gordon Strachan. It can be nice to remember that name. Um, he'll be kicked off the park. Yeah. The way the, the way teams set up the defensive uh, patterns now, and uh, that's that's the way the, the game became. So a 16 club league would allow latitude for trying to play good football yeah. and not merely defensive football. So that's why I think there should be reconstruction. It doesn't matter whether there's a, an epidemic on or, or not. And not merely to save hearts. It's not about saving hearts. It's about saving ourselves. Yeah. It's about saving everybody. So that's, that's why reconstruction, I think, is necessary. Although self-interest will come into this. Do you think clubs will, will help hearts out? Or, or, or will be perceived to be helping hearts out. Nah, no chance. They'll put, they'll, they'll frame it that way. They'll say it's not us. It's not for us to, to save hearts. What they really mean is, if we go into that reconstructed league, we might get relegated. Yeah. We might be piling the problems on ourselves. So why should we vote for reconstruction? Self-interest. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a shame. I, I agree with you. I think an independent inquiry would have would have helped matters with regards to that. Um, looking to yourself then, Archie, I mean, on a personal level, you, you, you've, you've acquired numerous awards for your, for your broadcasting and, and writing and what have you. Inducted into the Scottish Football Hall of Fame must have been a, a proud moment for you. Yeah, it was. Um, I was very proud of that. Um, it, uh, journalists contribute to the game. Broadcasters yeah. contribute to the game, maybe controversially maybe not agreed with on, on occasions, but they they do provide um, 
the opportunity for discussion, controversy, argument. Um, and I think it was recognized uh, for that, and I'm very grateful both to the SFA and to the journalists who, who voted me for that award. Yes, I, I was immensely proud. Yeah. And, of course, your book's out at the moment. Have you got any plans for any any more writing at all in the future? Well, I've written nine, so if you don't mind me adopting the parlance that is very current in Scottish football at the moment, I maybe go after ten in a row. <laughs> That's a fantastic way to end it. Archie McPherson, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for, for speaking to us. Thank you, I enjoyed it. Well, that was episode 53 of the Talking Football podcast with Archie McPherson. Remember, if you want to listen to any previous episodes, you can catch them all on Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud and Podbean. And make sure to subscribe to the recently launched website, talkingfitball.co.uk. You can keep up to date with all that's going on, plus there's a host of great articles on there. We're also on Twitter. You can follow us at Talking underscore Football, and we're on Facebook as well. We've got a load of fantastic guests lined up in the next few weeks. I hope you can join me for them. But until then, stay safe and bye for now.